Our guest today has the distinction of being the only reporter to have covered all 166 American astronaut flights from Cape Canaveral, including the moon landings. Jay Barbary of NBC News, quote, knows more about space than anyone I know, according to Tom Brokaw. Larry King has called him arguably the best correspondent to ever cover the space program. Over the course of his 55-year career, Mr. Barbary has won awards, including an Emmy for his coverage of Neil Armstrong's first walk upon the moon. We celebrated the 45th anniversary of Apollo 11 this last week, and luckily for us, our guest converted a friendship with the man who took one giant leap for mankind into a book. Its title is Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight, and we're keen to discuss it. This is not Jay Barbary's first book on space. He was the lead writer for the New York Times bestseller, Moonshot, along with astronauts Alan Shepard, Deke Slayton, and Neil Armstrong. This correspondent is especially grateful for a chance to talk about this book because Neil Armstrong was, well, he was a quiet individual who made no effort to cash in on his celebrity, and his studious avoidance of the limelight made him, to me anyway, something of an enigma. But thanks to Jay Barbary, this singular individual is now better understood. So let's talk about him and the space program he was a part of. And we're pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Jay Barbary. Hey there, Doug. Thanks for having me on, buddy. I want to note that Neil Armstrong was, was, was uncomfortable writing about himself, but uh, I guess said to you, in response to your calls for him writing an autobiography, Jay, you write it. Is it fair to say that this book is going to approximate that uh, autobiography that Neil didn't get around to writing? Let's say, first of all, it's not an autobiography, okay? <laughs> because there was an official biography written by Jim Hansen called The First Man. And uh, Neil and I talked about doing this uh, flight, this book, which is a reportage, which is a recreation, a written recreation of direct observation of his flights and his adventures in space and also in aircraft. So he wanted it done, and again, he wanted a lot of it straightened out. For example, the opening chapter is him ejecting out of a panther over uh, Korea during a Korean War just uh, less than three weeks after his 21st birthday. And the uh, Navy never got it right. They, they put out the official version. They had him hitting a guide wire to a power pole, <laughs> you know, with the tip of his right wing. Well, actually, he was 500 feet high doing 350 knots. And, it, and he hit an anti-aircraft cable stretched from mountain to mountain that took off about half of his right wing. So he had to fly much faster to keep it under control. He couldn't land it on the aircraft carrier, and he had to become one of the first pilots to eject from a jet fighter. And he did that as they, they left Korea going out over the uh, Sea of Japan. And uh, he got down okay. He hadn't much schooling on ejecting, but he had enough that he studied everything, and he got down okay. So he wanted that, he wanted that toast uh, uh, correctly. I wrote it. He read it. He liked it. And we talked about doing the rest of his uh, adventures in flight, but he wanted to make sure that everybody like Jim Lovell, uh, like uh, <clears throat> Tom Stafford, Gene Cernan, all of them, got as much credit as he did because he, he didn't feel he was anybody special, Doug. He thought that these other guys could have done the same thing. And, of course, once that you followed his life of flight and, and the tight situations that he'd been in, uh, then you know he was somebody special. And that's why they would wanted to give him the first chance, they being the officials of NASA, the first chance to land on the moon, Doug. Well, it's a very gripping tale that you tell about that ejection over Korea, and I think one thing that certainly emerges from it is that uh, 
Armstrong's cool thinking, as it would again later in his career, uh, really, really saved him that day. It sure did. And, and, and it did, as you point out, all through his career. He was the first guy to have to fly a spacecraft on a, an emergency return from space with the Gemini 8 after he just performed the first successful docking in space with the Agena stage. And he had to do that on his own. It was he and Dave Scott, the two of them, they were out of contact with mission control. They were actually over China most of the time, no tracking stations, and he had to bring it back under emergency condition just with the knowledge that he had for training. When he trained, he, he, he made sure that he knew everything he could conceivably know about the expected. What concerned him was the unexpected. And he had that happen on both of his major flights, Gemini 8 and also the Apollo 11 landing dub. Yeah. And talking about the Gemini 8 uh, uh, mission, he was supposed to dock with uh, a booster rocket that was up in space, and he's able to do so, which is, I guess, the first time there was an actual docking in space. But things almost spun out of control, leading to that emergency reentry. Yes, it sure did. They thought at first it was a thruster on the rocket, the Agena stage, that it was stuck. It, but he got it under control by using his larger rockets that he used, uh, has to use to come in to make reentry. He got it under control, stabilized enough that they could disconnect from it, undock. So they undocked, and then the Gemini stage began to spin again. And they realized it wasn't the Agena stage. It was their own spacecraft. So they tested every thruster they had. They got the thruster number eight. And that was it. They couldn't shut it off. They were able to shut the others off. That one they couldn't shut off, which meant it would continue to burn until it uh, depleted its fuel supply. So they let it do that, and then they got it under control and kept it there. And when it uh, completed its uh, fuel supply, then uh, they were ready to come home. But they had to stop it, so they had to use these bigger thrusters again to overpower this stuck thruster. And the officials on the ground said later that Neil made the exact decisions that he should have made. And these were the same officials that had been in the NACA, which was uh, the research team out at Edwards Air Force Base that worked in conjunction with the Air Force test pilots and the Navy test pilots. And he was a civilian research test pilot at Edwards, exactly what he wanted to be. And now they named the... Uh, uh, they named the uh, installation out there after him. The group after him is now the Neil Armstrong Research Flight Center out at Edwards Air Force Base. And uh, anyway, all of this, these guys saw what Neil Armstrong could do. He went ahead and flew the rocket plane, the X-15, took it as high as 37 miles to the edge of space, came back. He uh, came back a hot, little hot because he skipped off the top of the atmosphere, and they thought he was going to have to put it down somewhere else because when he came back to the spot he was supposed to land, he was still 100,000 feet high. So he wound up going down over Pasadena. Didn't quite get to the Rose Bowl, but almost turned around and came back and uh, brought it in and landed it at home base right where he was supposed to. So they were quite impressed with uh, Neil. Everybody thought that he was probably the sharpest pilot around, and they wanted him to have the first opportunity to land on the moon. Well, I want to talk a little bit about those Edwards Air Force uh, days. Of course, you, you make passing mention of the fact that this whole milieu was what uh, Tom Wolfe would later write about in, in The Right Stuff, a, a celebrated book and later a movie. And, and I gather that Neil Armstrong didn't really think that that book maybe got it quite right. And how, how do you think he would have described those times at Edwards? 
Well, first of all, uh, Tom Wolf, uh, who is a great writer, and it's not up to me to put him down, but Neil is right. Neil thought it was a great yarn, made a great movie, but it was terrible history. Hmm. That's his exact quote. He says it was the wrong people at the wrong time. In other words, he had people doing stuff in this book that they were supposed to be doing in the 60s, and they didn't do it in the 60s. They did it in the 50s and some in the 40s, like Chuck Yeager broke, broke the sound barrier in 1947 on October the 14th. Well, they had Chuck Yeager in there flying with these same guys that were flying a decade later and all. And uh, so anyway, Deal just thought it was terrible because they didn't get too much of it right. He was a stickler for being of accuracy. He was a person you didn't want to be around when you're trying to do something because he was just so slow and so precise at it, it would take forever, and he'd get on your nerves. <laughs> and so a lot of people didn't like that. And uh, he told me after the uh, rights, uh, after First Man came out, his uh, biography by Jim Hansen, who was a NASA historian, he's also a professor at Auburn University now. He had DC just looked at me and he says, I didn't I didn't have anything to do with that book. I just gave it all to Jim and Jim wrote it. <laughs> what he meant was he didn't try to help Jim write it. I'm sure that was the greatest gift he could give to Jim because he would have probably drove him nuts <laughs> while Jim was trying to write the book. You, you didn't you didn't get into it too much, but I I gather it really is true that uh, methodical though he may have been back when he was a young man, Neil Armstrong really did get a pilot's license before he got a license to drive a car. He oh sure he did. He see you couldn't get a pilot's license until you were sixteen. You could get a student permit when you were fourteen, which he had it. It was within a day or so of Neil's sixteenth birthday that he got his. Uh, uh, pilot's license, and then he finally got around to getting a driver's license, you know. <laughs> I like to go back to those first, uh, those days in the 60s, uh, when, when the first astronauts were announced, the Mercury 7, they were instantly famous. Uh, um, uh, again, those the, some of the test pilots, I gather, were a little skeptical, and, and Chuck Yeager, you mentioned in the book, famously referred to those who would climb into those early capsules as spam in a can, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if the lack of control that those early astronauts uh, really didn't have in those initial missions led to Neil Armstrong maybe to not uh, apply for the first go-round to become an astronaut. That's exactly correct, Doug. Neil looked at uh, the Mercury spacecraft, which had attitude control jets on it, hydrogen peroxide, and all, all it did was position the uh, spacecraft's proper attitude in its orbit. It did not have any ra rocket power to change uh, its orbital parameters except its deorbit rockets, and they were only to bring it out of orbit. So they had to turn around with the attitude control thrusters and position the spacecraft going backwards and tilt it up a little bit. And when they got it at the precise uh, position for it to come back in and land near its uh, uh, recovery ship, that's when they fired the uh, 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 retro rockets and it brought it down from orbit. And then they still had their attitude control jets to try to keep the blunt end up and facing toward uh, the uh, uh, friction that they were going in. They hit temperatures as high as 4,000 degrees, and they had uh, the heat shield back there that was burning away. Now, when they came along with the Gemini spacecraft, then they had these bigger thrusters on it, and they could actually change orbit. They had to be able to change orbit for it and would go up and rendezvous with another spacecraft and dock with it. So Gemini was essentially a bridge between Mercury and Apollo, the moon landing program. And so they 
tried a couple of docking uh, uh, sequences that didn't work, and then finally Neil did it on Gemini 8, and also they were having trouble doing spacewalks. And Buzz is the one that solved the spacewalk problem and, and did it on, uh, did it on uh, Gemini 12, the last mission up there. Buzz also had a couple of PhDs in rendezvous and space flight techniques, and uh, he was probably one of the best brains in, uh, in the astronaut corps, and Neil recognized that, and he wanted him for his uh, lunar module pilot and all and discussed it with Deke during the Gemini 8 mission because uh, Neil was backup commander to Frank Borman, who commanded Apollo 8, the first flight to the moon. They went in orbit around the moon and came back. Of course, it didn't land. Uh, but anyway, uh, he wanted, uh, he wanted uh, the best pilot there he could get, and, and, and Deke agreed and suggested Buzz for the experiments and all, and they, uh, one of the best uh, command module pilots, and Mike Collins, and the other one would be Jim Lovell, but Jim Lovell was in line to command his own flight, the Apollo 13, so Neil went with uh, Mike Collins. We're speaking with New York Times bestselling author Jay Barbary about his new book, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight. You're talking about some of the other astronauts here. I um, just want to say a couple things. When Neil Armstrong did apply to be uh, a member of the Gemini Corps, the second wave of astronauts, uh, apparently, from what I can gather, the application process with Deke Slayton was pretty brief. And, uh, and after talking about that, I want you to t- really, let's give some credit to Buzz Aldrin. I didn't realize until I read your book how vital he was to being able to, to, to do an EVA and, and uh, outside the capsule movements, which, which had thwarted everybody before that. Well, Buzz, Buzz solved the problems. He was a problem solver. You've got to remember, he, he had PhDs from MIT, and that's uh, you know, a pretty good school. And he came in third in his overall class at the uh, academy. And, of course, his father asked him, says, who came in first and second, <laughs> you know, instead of congratulating. Right. But anyway, Buzz was out there. Neil recognized this. He, Buzz was also a great F-86 uh, fighter pilot in the Korean War. He had a couple of kills. And uh, anyway, there was nothing slow about Buzz Aldrin at all, and Neil recognized this. A lot of people uh, wondered why these three guys were together, because they had so little in common. But as Neil told me, grinning as he often did, was uh, I wasn't looking for beer-drinking buddies. I was looking for the best guys I could get on the crew. And that's the way he felt about it. And uh, Buzz felt that Neil was the best pilot he'd he'd ever seen. And uh, Buzz was down here yesterday. They were dedicating the uh, operation and checkout building to Neil Armstrong. And he said in his little speech that Neil asked him to fly with him. And that's true. He did. Because he'd been with Neil uh, as a uh, part of the backup crew for uh, Apollo 8. And a lot of people thought that Buzz was a little too pushy. He came on. And I think really what it was, but yeah, he, he had that out type of a personality but i think he scared him a little bit and so when you when a guy comes on a little heavy and scares you a little bit you the first our reaction is to put him down they didn't know quite how to handle him but there wasn't a question of handling him buzz was there to do he was there to do the experiments and for example um, the press wrote a lot about the fact that there were no pictures taken on the moon of Neil Armstrong, they all were of Buzz. And they said Buzz wouldn't take a picture of Neil because he was jealous because Neil was the first on the moon, and he did it in spite. Well, when I told Neil that, Neil looked at me and says, what? He says, I had the camera. 
He says, Buzz couldn't take a picture. He was busy setting up the experiments. And, and Neil pointed out, I did give him the camera for 10 or 15 minutes before he went back in, and he took a picture of me loading rocks, you know, onto the lunar the belt right. that took it up there to LEV, and that's the cover of, my, of our book there. You'll see the back cover. Uh, you'll see Neil standing there loading rocks. Well, that's the picture that Buzz took of him. It was always things like this that people never got right, but one guy would see it as a possibility, and the next guy would make it fact. Of course, that famous Apollo 11 crew was, uh, was put together to go to the moon, but I want to uh, backtrack a second to note that it was back in 1961 when the Russians were beating us to, to space first after space first. President Kennedy was being advised by a science committee to forget about going to space because of this big edge the Russians held, but... JFK surprised the nation by announcing a goal of going to the moon by the end of the decade, and he was sort of playing the longer game, believing we could catch up and then eventually beat uh, the Soviets. I'm wondering uh, how, you're, how you reacted as a reporter covering those developments and, and whether you were uh, uh, stunned by this uh, surprisingly ambitious goal. Well, no. We expected it. We knew, we knew that it was coming down. We knew what JFK was looking for because he called everybody in because there were people up there in Washington. And they're still up there. I don't know. You never run these people off. <laughs> but they, 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 they're still up there, and they were telling him, oh, the Russians have beat us. Let's forget about it. We can't catch up with them, and it's too dangerous, and you don't want to do this. And so JFK just called everybody in before Alan Shepard flew on the Redstone, and he looked at him and he says, what are the odds that he'll lose his life? And most guys in the know said no, no greater than he'd lose his life on a commercial airliner flying to Los Angeles. And so anyway, JFK said, okay, we're going to go. We're going to fly it. So, of course, uh, Allen put in a perfect performance. And uh, as soon as he did, then recognizing what the country had to do, because he recognized the fact that we weren't behind the Russians technically. We were still ahead of them technically. See, we just hadn't, we had chosen not to put a satellite up there because Von Braun had a satellite on the launch pad in 1956, a year ahead of the Russians. Yeah. And the Secretary of Defense, Wilson, along with the blessing of Eisenhower, made him take it off the pad. They thought it was a stunt. They weren't a bit interested in it. They had put our, we said we'll join the IGY, the International Geophysical Year, and we bought a a rocket that had been developed by the Navy called the Vanguard, and they were trying to develop that when Von Braun already had a rocket that would work. Yeah. And he was the genius behind the Saturn V rocket that put us on the moon. But they had to fight like mad to just to get permission to do what they knew they could do. And when they finally called on them after they goofed around and tried several things and they looked like idiots, uh, you know, they called on um, Von Braun, to put a satellite up and says, we'll give you 90 days, and Von Braun says, I'll do it in uh, 60. And he did. And uh, so anyway, then we were off and running. And then Von Braun was on uh, Life, I mean, Time Magazine and Life and all of that, and he was a national hero. This nation was at his feet. And we were off and running. And it was his genius that put together the Saturn V and the Apollo and all of this stuff, the rocket, rather, uh, he wasn't too much into the Apollo because we had a, those guys that started back to uh, Mercury, Gemini, and all, and produced that and came up. He just gave them the vehicle that could push this thing to the moon. 
anyway, those were the days it was going on, and everybody was uh, sitting there. But to, uh, yeah, we knew we knew that uh, John Kennedy was going to say what he did after we had the successful the successful flight of uh, Alan Shepard. Well, I should note that. Um when you go to do something like landing on a moon, that's going to be tricky. You've got no air to help you with controls of the of an aircraft. Uh, you got to do everything with rockets. Uh, NASA developed this LLTV um, mm-hmm. vehicle to train the astronauts, and Neil Armstrong went out of his way to master this difficult vehicle. Um, in fact, he almost died in a training accident, but his training with this with this device would uh, prove critical later with the moon landing. That's right. He was uh, he he flew 61 flights and he was within 2.84 seconds, one hundredths of a second from hitting the ground when he had to punch out. But it was strictly a failure of the LLTV. Nothing that Neil did. He just did the right thing at the right time. Again, a situation of him getting out of a tight spot. But they some of the guys at the time wanted him. Uh, uh, the officials they we didn't want well, don't fly it anymore. Somebody gonna get killed. Neil says, well, what do you want me to do? Learn how to land on the moon 200 feet above it? <laughs> I'd rather do a little training down here where I can get some help. So he did 61 flights. The one thing that they they duplicated everything one one six G everything, but they couldn't get rid of the wind. So Neil told me it was much easier landing on the moon than it was flying the LLTV. But again, that was Neil Armstrong being prepared for the expected. He had to wait for the unexpected, and the unexpected was that the computer was bringing him down four miles off of his target in uh, in a crater as wide as a football field. So he had to take over and fly Eagle, and he flew it across all of this rubble and rocks and craters and all on the moon to find a smooth place to set it down, and he did. Of course, he was close to running out of fuel. He had 16 seconds of fuel left once Eagle touched down. That was in the descent stage. He still had all of his fuel in the ascent stage, but he didn't want to abort at that point, and he felt like once he got under 50 feet, he would settle down on the moon easy enough because this was one-sixth gravity, not the full Earth gravity. And so he did everything right there. Uh, so, you know, it's history. Yeah. He couldn't have been. He was the perfect person for the job, and he did the job great. And when he came home, he didn't uh, buy or uh, get involved in a thousand moon burger joints and try to make <laughs> more money than uh, Donald Trump. He did never ingratiated himself or enriched himself from the fact that he was the first person on the moon. Well, I, I was quite I was quite shocked when I, reading in your book something I'd never seen anywhere else that Armstrong actually wasn't that with 16 seconds of fuel left. Armstrong really wasn't that worried if he got down to zero seconds of fuel because, as you say, he figured with the with the limited gravity of the moon, if he wasn't that high, they could still put the thing down. That's because of the one six gravity. Now yeah. you drop that eagle on Earth from 50 <laughs> feet at Earth's gravity, then it would probably break a couple of landing legs and shake some things loose. Mr. Barber, I want to ask you about Apollo 10 briefly. It doesn't get talked about much. It did everything Apollo 11 did except the landing, took some photographs that were very useful for Apollo 11. But can you clarify this rumor I heard somewhere that NASA told, I guess it was Tom Stafford, that he wouldn't have enough fuel to blast off again if he were to say, out of hell with it and put it down himself anyway. That's true. It is true. In other words, uh, the uh, Snoopy, the lunar module, was too heavy. If they used the same amount, they couldn't get off the moon. And uh, there was even a discussion at one time 
not to put landing pads on it because they was afraid that Tom would go ahead and do it. <laughs> and uh, Tom is my neighbor. He's a very good friend. He's a retired three-star general, and he was very helpful on this book. He was one of the biggest contributors on this book. He pioneered the route, he and Gene Cernan pioneered the route that they followed in Apollo 11. That was their job. They went to within 8.4 nautical miles of the moon, and everything worked out great. They had a, a long switch thrown there at that low point on the moon, but they got it. he got it recovered in a hurry. Tom Stafford, like uh, Neil Armstrong, was one of the best pilots in the Corps. Well, the Apollo 11, of course, is a spectacular success. We, we, all, uh, we all know, but um, you report that Neil Armstrong he took a look at it, realized there's nothing he's going to be able to do for an encore for the rest of his life to top a moon landing, so he decides that family teaching and learning would be the things that he'd emphasize for the next 40 years, and I guess uh, along the way he also returned to, to farming. Dairy farming, in that sense, it was a dairy farm. And, uh, yeah, no, he enjoyed that. Uh, he enjoyed the peace and quiet and tranquility. Well, I have a couple just final questions. I just want to ask if you have a, uh, a favorite memory about the, the extensive time you, you spent with Neil Armstrong. Well, yeah, a couple. And he told me things in confidence I can't tell you. And that memory you're talking about, that's in confidence, so I, I can't <laughs> tell you. But one thing about Neil, he had a heck of a sense of humor. People didn't realize that. For example, he walked into the astronaut office one morning and uh, Dave Scott, I believe it was, turned to him and says, Hey, Neil, I passed by your house last night. And Neil looked at him and says, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Kept walking, you know. But he was all, for example, he and uh, John Glenn had been teamed up as uh, survival buddies in the jungles of Panama, and they were on the Choco Indian Reservation down there in the jungles. And they had a little pup tent, and so they put the pup tent up, and they were going to take a couple of pictures. Well, Neil had already written out Choco Hilton, you know, after the <laughs> Indians. So he had that sign up there, and they teased all the other guys. They all had to get in the water, and they were all worried about if there were piranhas in that water. You know, they had to go down this river. Well, Neil knew, uh, being a science fiend that he was, he knew no piranhas were up that high. They didn't mm -hmm. come that close to the equator. Right. So, so uh, anyway, they were further down, you know, south of the equator. And also crocodiles. They didn't have any crocodiles. They had these smaller versions. I forget what they call them. They, they were along there, but weren't concerned about it. Well, they're going down this river, and Neil is saying to John, I think that's a crocodile over there. I don't know what he's eating. Well, it could be somebody's head, you know. <laughs> well, hey, all these other astronauts are swimming over towards Neil and John, you know. And watch out those piranhas. That's got to be a pool of piranhas over there, you know. Yeah. But he, they, they kidded him all the way down. And, uh, you know, they put on the greatest gotcha dinner that's ever been put on for the Mercury astronauts to get their respect. And uh, that's all in the book, and you'll have to read about what they did on that. But, yeah. Uh, we got the lighter moment moments in there, and we tried to get Neil Armstrong in there. As uh, Gene Cernan says, and he's quoted on the book, The Last Man on the Moon, he says, you'll find Neil Armstrong on you in these pages. And John Glenn says in writing the foreword, John Glenn says, uh, turn the page, and I think you'll be pleased. And uh, so they, they're, they're happy with the book, and it's doing quite well. We're already on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, I'm very appreciative because I wanted to get this book out for uh, the libraries. And this is one thing after the Neil passed, and we hadn't done the book yet, 
John Glenn and uh, Jim Lovell and Tom Stafford and all of us were talking, and they said, you know, we've got to get Neil's story of flight out there. Yeah. It's got to be left for history. And they said, Jay, you've got to go ahead and write it because you've been talking about it. So they gave me all the help in the world that I could use. I was in there working for 21 months. So we tried to deliver a good book, and we hope it'll be here for history. And we're, we did our best, and we're, we're quite proud of it, Doug. Well, you should be. It's a, it's a fine effort. I do want to just ask one final thing, which I probably shouldn't do, but I just can't resist. There are, some, there are some poor people out there who claim that we faked the moon landings, and, and, and I guess Charlie Duke famously said, uh, <laughs> we went to the moon nine times. Why would we fake it nine times? Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's always been what I said. Al Bean said the same thing. I mean, if I'm going to fake something, <laughs> and I'm going to do everything I can to get away with it, and I'm successful... Why would you turn around and fake it eight more times? Exactly, exactly. And give yourself those kind of odds to get caught. But, of course, it's ridiculous from the get-go because you had 400,000 people working on the moon, uh, Apollo program. How the hell are you going to keep 400,000 people right. quiet? It's impossible. Plus, the missions were tracked by the Russians, by Jodro Bank in England, and all of this. We all of know course, they were up there. Sure, of course, sure. the lunar orbiter, it's up there now a couple of years ago, has shot pictures of every landing site, and there clearly yeah. are the uh, astronauts' tracks. There's uh, stages left there, and the cases where there was a lunar rover, like on Apollo 17, you can even see where Gene Cernan left the wheels turned just right <laughs> on the rover. You know, it's sitting there. And all the evidence in the world is there, plus we, all the universities in the world have been able to measure the moon's distance any time by reflecting sure. a laser exactly. off of a reflector left there by the astronauts. So it's just, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And we know that when this one guy got in um, Buzz's face <laughs> and, and all, and he started shouting, swear on this Bible that you went, Buzz just reached over and clocked him. <laughs> And so he was all shook up about that. But when he approached Neil, he was holding out this Bible to Neil, and he says, swear on this Bible that, uh, uh, you know, that you went to the moon. And he says, uh, I would, sir, but I'm sure your Bible is as big a fake as you are. <laughs> that's so a... that's all Neil said to him quietly and walked off. But it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. Everything that they claim... You know, there's a program on Discovery Channel uh, called the Mythbusters. Yeah. And they went into a vacuum chamber at the Marshall Space Flight Center, and all of this stuff that they were bringing up about when on the moon was making this flag flutter and all that stuff, or the wind, which was here on Earth, and there's no wind on the moon. And, you know, it is so ridiculous because, first of all, there was no at there's no atmosphere on the moon. And when you take something like you're driving that flag down, well, what it's going to do is start reacting from it. Well, where you've got no atmosphere whatsoever, then it's going to take it three or four times longer to stop vibrating because there's no resistance there. Sure. And the Mythbusters proved that. You know, so everything they've come up with is just totally nonsense. And uh, I don't want to dignify it by even talking <laughs> about it, but we do visit it in the book. And we got the pictures in there to prove it. Well, we did We did bring Phil Plate of badastronomy.com on a few years back just to demolish the whole thing, and that was sort of a, a fun exercise. But uh, it's a great book. We, again, we want to tell people, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight. We've been speaking with uh, NBC reporter and author Jay Barbary about it. 
been a great pleasure for us to speak with you, Mr. Barbary, and I just want to thank you for the book, and, and I wish you the best in continuing your reporting on space missions and, and your advocating for these uh, explorations. Thank you, sir, and I appreciate it, Doug. Uh, call me anytime I can help, buddy. We'd be very happy to. Well, I just, thank m- you again. just might do that. It's been, it's been really fun. Thank you, sir. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.